welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. Could you imagine writing and publishing over 150 books in a single year? I certainly couldn't, but in this week's podcast episode, I caught up with two authors who are doing just that. The two authors are people that I've followed online for a long time, and their book, Write, Publish, Repeat, was a touchstone for anybody who's interested in self-publishing. They've also just released a new follow-up to that book called The Fiction Formula. I am, of course, talking about Sean Platt and Johnny B. Truant of Sterling and Stone, who are also co-hosts of the Story Studio podcast. But before we get into that interview, here's a little bit about what I'm up to for 2020. And it doesn't involve writing and publishing 150 books like Sean and Johnny. Instead, I'm going to focus on writing nonfiction. In particular, I'm going to focus on doubling down on writing longer nonfiction articles and essays. I'm going to write these, of course, for Forbes, which is something I did during 2019. So I'm going to continue to do that. I'm also going to write more personal essays. So personal essays are a type of essay that I learned about maybe seven or eight years ago when I was studying literary nonfiction writing. It's basically a form of deeper, more introspective writing whereby you write an essay on a particular topic and it could be several thousand words long. And I want to do this because I've been writing businessy type articles like I write for Forbes for a while now. So I feel like I need a new creative challenge. And I was considering writing another book and I probably will do that too. But I feel like I need to explore a different form of writing first before I go and write another business book or another book about writing. And who knows if the personal essay project, you know, does well. If people find the articles interesting, perhaps I could turn that into a collection that I could publish on Amazon. So that's one of my creative goals for 2020. Something else I'm planning on working on is to continue to develop uh, my online courses. So I have a number of online courses that teach writers how to become more productive and efficient, that teach nonfiction writers how to earn an income, that help writers, you know, get over the fear of sharing their work online and start earning more money from their work. I also want to improve these courses and perhaps create some new ones during 2020. So that's something I'm going to focus on too. I like creating online courses because if you write nonfiction, it's a complement to whatever it is you've included in your articles or your books. The simple fact is people consume information in different ways. A reader might buy your $5 ebook or your $10 print book, read what's inside of that book and move on. Somebody else might buy a course that covers some of the topics inside of that book. The course could cost a little bit more because it takes, you know, a bit more time and resources to create, but they might find value in a different way. And I've actually bought books and courses from the same authors. Ramit Sethi is one example that I can think of, and I've got value from both his books and his courses. Joanna Penn, who I interviewed on the show, will be another example. So if you're writing nonfiction, I would encourage you to consider about the ideas inside of your book or your articles and how you could turn them into a course. While I was setting this creative goal, I reflected on things I had done during 2019. And like many people, I realized that it wasn't just the end of 2019, but it's the end of the decade. And by the time you're listening to this episode, it'll be the start of the new decade, which is pretty exciting. But it's difficult for me to contemplate what my life was like at the start of the decade. Right now, I have three kids. I have a 13-year-old son who will be 14 when this episode is released. I have a nine-year-old daughter and a baby who is 15 months old. At the start of the decade, I only had one child, my son. He was, I think, two or three at the time. 
And I lived in a smaller, different house in the suburbs outside of Dublin. And I wasn't married. Whereas right now I've been married for about eight years. Back in 2010, I was working in a job that I really didn't like. It was a job uh, within social care, which I've talked about in The Power of Creativity. But I found it really frustrating, difficult, stressful, and not at all creative. These days, I spend most of my day writing or engaged in creative work, like recording this podcast episode. Back in 2010, I wanted to write and I was making some effort at it in that I'd taken a number of creative writing classes, but I don't think I was writing consistently. I might have written for half an hour one day, an hour another day, 15 minutes the day after that, and I would take a break. These days, I write almost every day and it tends to be for longer periods. Of course, I hadn't published any books back in 2010, whereas now I've published a number of books. I don't say any of this to boast or to talk about my accomplishments, but I'm just simply reflecting on how I suppose my life has changed over the past 10 years. And I can't imagine how it will change over the next 10 years. In fact, I think technology has changed my life and many people's lives in lots of different ways. It was a lot harder for creatives to earn a living back in 2010. It was certainly possible, but, you know, the tools just weren't as easy. It was a lot harder, for example, to self-publish a book if that was your thing and certainly a lot more expensive. These days, thanks to tools like Vellum and Readsy and 99designs and so on, you can write and self-publish a book that looks professional relatively quickly and easily. Back in 2010, you know, it was harder to start a blog and a podcast. I actually did start a blog in 2010 about technology and I quickly let that die. It was on Blogspot. Whereas these days you can go on Medium and start writing about a topic that excites you and find an audience and you don't need any technical skills to do that. Back in 2010, you know, the iPhone had only been out and wasn't as fast or as useful as it is now for working remotely. Whereas these days you can do almost everything using your mobile device or your tablet. So I can't imagine the types of technologies and tools we'll be using in 10 years time or how life will have changed for creatives. But I certainly think that there will be a lot more opportunities for people, even more so than there are now today. Because if you're engaged in creative work, I think there's no better time to be alive simply because of the internet and the tools that's made available. You can connect with your ideal readers, with your fans, and you can serve them in a way that just wasn't possible, let's say, back in the 1990s or before that. You don't have to ask for permission. You don't have to wait till somebody accepts your work and you don't have to do something you don't want to do because there is an audience out there waiting for you. You just have to be brave enough to go out there and find them and be consistent with your work. I talked there about how I'm going to create some courses in 2020, but two people who are not creating courses in 2020 are Sean Platt and Johnny B. Truant of Sterling and Stone and the Story Studio podcast. And actually their book, which they released a few years ago, Write, Publish, Repeat, was one of the first books that I read when I got into self-publishing. And I think it's been a touchstone book within the self-publishing community in that it offers a clear roadmap for any author who wants to get their first book out into the world and start earning royalties from Amazon and other stores. The title gives it all away. The key idea or controlling idea of that book was simply write your book, publish it, and then repeat the process and do that as quickly as possible. Now, Sean and Johnny took that to, I suppose, a different level in that they've written over a hundred books last time I checked, you know, over the course of the last few years. And they've done it through working with co-writers and other collaborators. And that's something they're actually doubling down on in 2020. They're doubling down on it so much that they've moved away from offering courses and also from hosting in-person events. In other words, they've moved away from doing all the things that, you know, nonfiction authors and bloggers and so on do to supplement their book royalties. And when I was talking to Sean Platt in this episode, he explained to me how they've actually mapped out a publication schedule 
for not only 2020, but 2021. And I thought this was particularly impressive. I, you know, work several months in advance, but to speak to an author who was working 12 to 18 months in advance was particularly inspiring. So I certainly need to improve my forward planning skills compared to these guys. So that's something we cover in the podcast. They get into a bit more detail about why they stopped creating courses in the first place and hosting in-person events. And Sean talks about how they're going to publish those 150 books. The mind still boggles when I, when I say that figure. He also gets into with Johnny what it takes to generate thousands of dollars a month in revenue from book sales and stores like Amazon. I think you'll find this particularly interesting if you're you know writing genre fiction. If you haven't written any fiction or nonfiction or at least self-published it, he explains where new indie authors should start if they want to self-publish quickly. And finally, they get into something called the flywheel effect, which is a concept I learned about during 2019 from the business author Jim Collins. But basically, it involves publishing work consistently or finding a process that you work on consistently to gain momentum within your business. They explain what that flywheel effect is in the episode and how it's informed their creative work. There's lots more we get into, but I started by asking Sean and Johnny to explain why they decided to write a follow-up to the you know fantastic book, Write, Publish, Repeat, and what they want to achieve with this new book, which is called The Fiction Formula. As far as why we're writing the fiction formula, there's two main reasons. One is to kind of update what we've learned since Write, Publish, Repeat. Now, it's not to update Write, Publish, Repeat. It's, it's slightly sideways of that because some of the things that we've learned, they don't overlap exactly with what's in Write, Publish, Repeat, but we've learned wholly new topics that weren't even touched then, which we can go into. The other main reason is because our business has shifted to basically wholly fiction. We do write some nonfiction books, but we do just write books now. And that's also something we could talk about. But um, as we're doing more and more fiction, we've needed to leave kind of the, the wild cowboy era that used to be the case in 2013 when we wrote Write, Publish, Repeat, where honestly, there was a lot of just kind of figuring it out. And a lot of things worked, even if they were sloppy. But these days, it's increasingly hard to be noticed amongst all of the other self-publishers out there and just publishing in general. And it takes a more professional effort, let's say. And so this is kind of the area of like systems and procedures for us that help us kind of turn a repeatable crank or push a repeatable flywheel, if you like the Jim Collins model. So that's what this book is about, is about what the systems are and how to just basically be more pro and more quote, formulaic, if you will, with uh, the way you write. Not in a bad way. I want to emphasize that. Formulaic sounds terrible. I just heard it in my own ears. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was also um, for us like a departure from education or a way to simplify what we were doing. Because Write, Publish, Repeat did take off in a way that we hadn't expected or anticipated or really necessarily were even looking for, it ended up guiding a lot of what we were doing for too long. You know, what you said at the beginning of the show and before we started recording, you know, that that book had an influence and we liked that. We liked seeing that we had that influence. So we chased that in the wrong way. And because Johnny and I both came up in, in online marketing circles, so we had the dual devils on our shoulder of people in our space telling us, you need to develop a course, you need to develop a course, you need to develop a course with an audience who kept saying, we want a course, we want a course, we want something like a course. And us thinking, we don't want to do any of that. We don't want to build it. We don't want to sell it. <laughs> we don't want to do any of that. We want to tell stories. But you know, once we, we did our first live event and we had the book and the podcast was, was just taking off, it just, we kind of went in the wrong way and, and got away from our core competency, which is telling stories. And so education just went too far. And by the time we pulled it back, 
fiction formula is essentially the outline that we would have used to build out this big video course that none of us ever wanted to do. So it was a way of like, hey, here's everything we would have done in just the simple $5 version. Yep. Like from a purely business point of view, did you not consider that it would bring in more revenue if you created the course instead of the book? Yeah, but so what's interesting about this is that it's true on one level that it would have brought us more money. I mean, we've we've done we did programs in the past that weren't quite courses, but we, we, you know we we would sell stuff that was higher ticket items, and they they did bring in a lot of money, and we would say, look at all this money. But what happened was it actually lost us money in the long term because in order to support those efforts, you need a staff. You need a different kind of organization than a story studio needs because you're yeah. running a more traditional business. And we were able to look back and the decision that um, prompted us to say, let's forget all this education, let's just do books, was when we kind of realized that this big chunk of money that we had gotten from some of those efforts was actually a loss to us for two main reasons. Number one, because we had to support it all. We had a staff of like 30 at that point and oh, payroll, okay. heavy payroll. But it also taking our eye off the ball of fiction, particularly fiction, cost us a lot because there's a momentum thing there. There's like a, a, a rolling boulder. And when we stop yeah, going back to the flywheel, it's like you just stop pushing it and it doesn't it doesn't hold its place. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, that flywheel metaphor is fantastic from Jim Collins. I read about that this year as well. So how many is in in your company now then? How many guys, how many do you guys employ? It depends how you define it because we work with, I want to say 15 other writers right now, but I'm, I'm choosing work with carefully rather than employ or have on staff or anything because we actually, we don't really have many employees, very few. And we work with a team who it's, it's almost like a, it's like a, a co-op, everybody all in, you know? And um, so we're all pushing that flywheel together, but we, we aren't employee and employer. It's, it's not like that. It's a bunch of people working together. Okay. So how does the writing process work then with a model like that? Um, it depends on the project. But in general, we... Well, there's, there's two parts to this question. Um, as far as current production, what we do is we, we spend a lot of time up front in pre-production. So we really know our stories at a time. We meet in a, in you know a writer's room where we all get together and can kind of brainstorm ideas out. So maybe somebody has a story for an idea, or an idea for a story, and we as a group can kind of tease it out, ask them the right questions, validate their assumptions, go over their outlines. By the time we're ready to actually write, we really are comfortable with our material. <clears throat> we're ready to go fast, and then we have all the support system ahead and behind the project itself to get it to market. But there's a, a really big time cost for us and just effort cost and monetary cost that we have up front with each of our authors because we work with an author for about a year and a half before they actually get anything to market. And okay. that's counter to the way it's, it's kind of done right now, which is get to market as fast as you possibly can. And we go slower, not to go faster, but to stay consistent. We, we only do things at this point that are sustainable. That's not how we used to do things. We used to go as fast as possible. We used to break things so that we could put them back together and understand how they work. But it's not that that was the wrong thing to do. It's that you know what got us here won't get us there. And now we need to adapt and we need to think about what we're doing in not a new way, but in, in a way that is more evolved because we've grown up as a company. And now that we're a little more mature, and it's not just us supporting 
you know, us three guys, you know, trying to write our stories and feed our families. We actually have this whole infrastructure and a whole studio full of authors that we're trying to support. And we have to give them the tool set. So it's not about handing them, you know, a bunch of fish. It really is about going out to the ocean every single day and braving the waves and getting our lines out there and and teaching them how to do that themselves. And so this last year and a half has been about building runway for our, you know, front line of authors. And even though there's, you know, 15, we'll only see a couple of them this year and then more next year. And and that's how it will be because we want to grow slow and strong. Okay. Okay. So how, and this is something that's in the book, but how can somebody based on what you've described, choose a genre that's commercial and fulfilling. I'm going to leave that to you, Sean, because that's a genre therapy answer, I think. Yeah, I love telling the story and I'm sure people are going to get really sick of hearing it, but I'll tell the shorter version of this. We stumbled upon this very recently. Um, I want to say last year, it's maybe a year and a half old, but we had, when we were first moving into this production model and we were bringing in authors, we were going to start a romance line, which we are, are not actually running right now at all. Precisely because of this, we found that a lot of romance authors, they shouldn't be writing romance. (laughs) They're writing romance because they've assumed that they can write romance, right? These are so, you know, universal story structures. Romance is just one of the easiest genres to write for that reason. If you can create believable characters and you can write believable sex scenes, there is a market there. There's a lot of romance readers. It's also a ton of competition. And if it's not truly in your heart space, then even if you're successful, you end up with golden handcuffs. Johnny and I know a lot of very successful on paper romance authors who are kind of miserable with what they're writing. And we had a romance author who, you know, she'd been writing romance for years and years and years, traditionally published, not traditionally published in all the writers groups and forums that she was, it was romance. And our job is to develop really commercial ideas. So the idea itself was rockin'. The name of the franchise was rockin'. It was the kind of thing where you could give a reader the same but different experience over and over and over. But we pilot everything. You know, we treat it like, okay, here's the pilot. Is this good enough? Do we go to full series? And so we were at the pilot part of this discovery process for her. And the pilot should have been good enough. It should have been based on the elements and the writer we had assigned, it should have gone to series, but there was something slightly off about it. And we had to have a meeting about that because in our company, a good enough story isn't. We really want to build, we're creating perennial content. And that means sometimes, you know, not taking something to market if it's not good enough. And this was was good, but it was the first one and we really wanted it to be great. So we were asking around, hey, you know, what is it about writing romance that you like? She liked the banter. She liked the the back and forth between characters, getting into their heads, the emotions, all of this stuff. But really nothing that she said couldn't be in a buddy cop movie or, you know, X-Files type. Well, and and importantly, she didn't like writing sex scenes or happy endings. (laughs) The two key parts of a romance book. (laughs) Right. I was just getting there. The, The stuff that she didn't like was like the core heartbeat of any romance. You have to have a happy ending. She doesn't like happy endings. (laughs) You have to have sex, even if it's implied, and she doesn't like writing sex. So those are big barriers. So we got to asking her, well, if you could write anything, what would you write? And she asked us in all seriousness, this sounds like a punchline, but it wasn't. It was a very serious question in the moment. She said, is there anything like a Jack the Ripper romance? Well, no, there's not. (laughs) But... (laughs) 
But there are serial killer thrillers where maybe a a male and female cop need to work together and you can keep the banter and the chemistry, but not have all the stuff you don't actually want. And it turns out she's a dark thriller author. That's what she wants to write. It's what she's always wanted to write and she didn't actually know it. And what we found is that most authors do not understand what the true intersection between what is commercial and what is viable for them as a sustainable creative outlet. And once you can find that secret secret little corner of your creative self, you can kind of create commercial content on repeat. So it's it, we spend a lot of time figuring that out. And we call it genre therapy because it is what it is. We have to know who the person is as a human and as a creator so that we can figure out where their commercial sensibilities actually lie. And if you're thinking that that sounds like an answer to how do you find something you enjoy writing rather than something you will be success, successful writing, the truth is that they, they go together. There's a lot of people out there right now, like I was saying, writing stuff. It's not like the old days where you could kind of build it and they would come. And so one of the things that is impossible to fake, at least by most people, is you know true connection. A story that is written from a heartfelt space is different from one that is just sort of written as a mercenary. And so we found that the people who go through genre therapy always say there's always a light bulb that goes on in a very like, oh my God, I can actually do this sort of way. And it makes them more productive, faster, and they write better stories. Now, there is an additional consideration, but it really does come second. And that is to find where the market has, what's the right say, things that like weaknesses or, or things, holes that need to be filled that overlap with the Venn diagram of what you have just learned about yourself in genre therapy. And so it basically gives you a subset from which you can pick and you choose a commercial genre that's doing well and fits the other criteria from your subset. Okay. Okay, gotcha. And you, you also said something there, or perhaps Sean said it, if you build it, they will come, that's not really working anymore. And, and that seemed to be an idea in, mm-hmm. in write, publish, repeat. And certainly Amazon ads are harder these days as well. So are you guys like relying on the quality of the work for it to stand out instead? Is that the change? Well, there's a few things. Uh, primarily, yes, the quality of the work does matter because good enough just isn't anymore. The market is so beyond saturated. You have no hope of standing out if you're just writing a rough draft and you know publishing once a month. Like you may you may trick readers a couple of times, but you're not going to build a list of just like passionate, devoted fans who are dying for what you're reading next. And it's too easy in, you know, especially KDP Select, you just go from one to the next, to the next, to the next, because it's free. And, you know, KDP Select feels very temporary for us. And we do use it as a vehicle because it does have its benefits. Of course, that's where so much of the traffic is right now. But it's not sustainable. We want fans who are willing to pay for our work. We want our work to be in a place where you know, the decision makers in Hollywood are able to see it. And so far, all of our options and interests have come from outside of the Amazon ecosystem. So that's important to us long term for what we're trying to build. But we absolutely can't ignore that. And what we need to do is approach the entire publishing adventure from a different perspective, which is through patience. And patience is not, you know, pervasive right now in the indie publishing community. People are trying to go as fast as they can. There's a lot of fear that there's too much competition and that this is the end. <laughs> and I mean, that's the way it's been since like 2013. It's gotten worse, but the actual culture hasn't changed. It's that, you know, there isn't as much of an abundance mindset. And if you are competing for the quality of your story and you're willing to be patient, then I think the mathematics of write, publish, repeat actually still hold true, if not more than ever, which is you have to build your reader base 
and then do it over and over and over again. You have to get better by the book. And better by the book doesn't just mean creating a better story. It means creating a better reader experience. It means communicating better, bonding better from book to book to book. And that's just turning the flywheel. And if you do that with a lot of intention and you do it with quality and you're constantly making your readers happy and giving them a reason to consume what you have next and share what they just enjoyed, you will build a sustainable career. So we approach it that way, but also we approach it more as a collective where there's a bunch of us. So we are really able to prop one another up, you know, take turns in the spotlight and just rotate the carousel in that way. And the collective that you've described, I I presume you're not all in the one office. Oh no, we're all over the world. Yeah. Um, All over the continents. I mean, I think Antarctica is, is (laughs) we don't have anyone there, but yeah, we're, we're all over. How did you bring together like such a diverse group of writers across all those genres? The education department <laughs> that we ultimately Ironically. Close. Yeah. We, we've always put a lot of ourselves and a lot of our personality into what we do, which is why we were able to hold live events, which is why our podcast yeah. was successful, which is why people bond with our nonfiction books. And so 100% of the people who are in our studio came from our community. And I imagine that's the way it will be going forward. It's one of the big benefits of continuing to teach through nonfiction books is that it allows us to kind of codify what we know and get it out there. And we believe that that over time will help to elevate the culture in the indie community and put quality first. And we really believe in that and we're really allegiant to that. So we want to keep stoking that fire. But yeah, beyond that, we think that keeping ties into the community means that we'll have access to that talent pool. And we want driven, smart, you know, writers who just want to do things in a different way, but want a community to do it with. Okay. Okay. And you talked there, I think you said you've 15 writers or so you're currently collaborating with. So, so how do you balance then like maker time and manager time? Uh, that's a lot more on Sean than it is on me. I'm, I'm, I'm mainly a maker and he's like serial collaborator. He works with everybody. Okay. I try to make myself as obsolete as I can, as soon as I can. Right now, we're heavy training, but we won't ever be bringing on a big wave of writers like we did in this first phase. Right now, we have a lot of of people who are all kind of at the same stage. And so we're learning our processes now. Throughout this next year, throughout 2020, we'll be publishing what we call our core curriculum. And that's... um, we're basically building all the books and the processes for our our own studio. Our, I mean, they're they're SOPs, but way sexier than that <laughs> because they're actually teaching you how to, to write and sell fiction. And so we're creating those for our storytellers first and then sharing them with the general audience as just regular nonfiction books. But once that training process is complete, it'll be a lot easier for us in the future to bring in authors one at a time and have them go through that process. And I won't have to be a part of it because that's the reason for developing it with these authors and developing the core curriculum. Ideally, I just want to write with my few partners. Right now, I write with Dave and Johnny and Bonnie. And that's, that's to me, nirvana. Uh, like I would love to just do that. And maybe one project or author at a time who really needs my attention. But by and large, just that. That's, that's where I would spend my time. But right now, I'm perfectly content to take my time getting there and just use a lot of my maker time to help the, the studio along as a whole. And Johnny, are you spending much time each day writing? It sounds like your process is a bit different to Sean's. Uh, yes. So... I'm, I'm basically, yeah, I, I, I write in the mornings. Um, I actually just finished for the day. And 
Same as Sean, but I'm just working on my own stuff or usually stuff that's collaborative with Sean. I just have like one or two projects that are that are solely me. But yes, I still spend most of my morning writing. Okay. Did you spend your morning writing as well, Sean, or do you do work on the business stuff in the morning? Uh, no, I try to never, ever do business stuff in the morning. Um, this is actually a very rare exception. I, I write until noon. Now, writing could be outlining. It could be editing something that someone needs me to turn, or it could be getting my own draft words in. But that's before noon. And then noon to two is just kind of exercise or sleep or eat or whatever. And then from two forward is is anything else. That's our story meetings. That's email. That's catching up on anything I owe people. But ideally, as time goes forward, what I would really love to do is that first part of the day, I just get to spend on my projects. And my projects would be anything that I'm responsible for creating an outline or a draft for. And really, that would just be my work, Bonnie's, uh, Johnny's, or Dave's. And then anything else in the company is from 2 o'clock on. That would be my kind of holy grail. And I hope to get there by this time next year. Okay, gotcha. So I suppose just to return to what we're talking about with courses there a few moments ago, most of the nonfiction authors that I've interviewed or, or talked to have a business behind their nonfiction book. I don't think many of them have a business like 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 you guys, but do you think courses are are on the way out as a business model for nonfiction authors? Or is it just something that you guys just pivoted away from? I don't think that they're out. I think that they're going to... I think they've already begun to change and I think they're going to continue to change. So when Sean and I started on the internet, you could basically... I mean, this sounds a little jaded, but it's true. You could basically just gather a bunch of people together and interview them and sell it for $97 or something else ending in 97 Oh my God, it's sad but true. <laughs> right. It was very, very true. And so it slowly bled away from that and you had to have better courses and better courses. And we know some people who really make some amazing courses and kind of do them. It's like a university replacement almost. And I think that we're going we're gonna to see more and more of, of that. And I think we're going to see an acceptance that... I think we already are seeing an acceptance and have seen for a while that there's a lot of free stuff out there. And people tend to just go and Google and listen to podcasts way more... Sorry, under some of the same circumstances where they might have gone and just bought a course in the past. I think that now the game has changed so that you really have to up your ante. You have to have top-level curation, i.e., yes, you could find this out there for free, but we've you know, put it in a form that makes a lot more sense and we've, we've called the best and we've developed some stuff that you're not going to find out there. I still think that a nonfiction book into a, an education business, let's say, a business that educates in some way is definitely the way to go for a lot of people. But I think that you can't just slap up videos anymore. It's going to be something where it's live consultation or speaking or really top-notch courses or something like that. You guys, there's 15 or 16 people that you're working with. But what if somebody was just getting started? How can they take away some of the lessons that you've learned to, I suppose, get their stories out into the world and start earning from them? Well, I don't think you need a big, giant studio. I mean, when we started, we're only where we are now because of the things that we've done. And when we started, it was just the three of us. And, and technically, before that, it was just Dave and I. That was still collaboration. The point is you don't have to go out there alone. And I think things are more niche. I think getting information needs to be more targeted, needs to be more specific. And you know, to go back one second and answer that question, yes, I think that the course model in the future, Johnny's right, it has to be more curated. And for someone like us, it's not that we are opposed to teaching because we like have, making a difference, but we don't want to divide our time from what we're truly passionate about, which is not teaching. Teaching is something we can be happy that we're doing, but it's never going to be as passionate for us as just telling stories. So 
in a curated type situation where like with masterclass or something like that, where we were being ourselves and providing content. We actually did something like this earlier in the year where we went to a location and something was shot and they put it together and that's all we had to do. And that to us, I could absolutely see because we're not creating the content. We're not selling the content. We're participating in the content so that there, you know, there's impact there. And I think that makes a big difference. And for the lone author struggling, like there's so much to consume. There's so much to learn and there's so much to actualize. And the way it was a few years ago in the cowboy years is we just did that all. I don't mean just us. Anybody in the indie space was kind of like figuring out how to do their own covers and wrangling their own edits and all of that. And the benefit of our studio is that the authors who are are working there, they get to do the the part of of the process that they like most. For the majority of them, that's just writing drafts. They just want to tell stories. (laughs) So giving them support on on all the other ends where they can just do what they do best, lean into their superpower and give us really great quality perennial stories, that works. Now, you can do that in baby steps. Find a collaborator who's really great at outlines if you want to write drafts. If you really just love writing outlines and creating the stories, then you can do that. I'm lucky enough to have found collaborators on either side. Even before the studio, Johnny loves to write drafts, so I can write him outlines. And Dave would love to give me a concept, which I can then write a draft for. So I got to collaborate on both sides of that. Um, Most people are not as you know, aggressively ambitious as I am in that way. So one collaborator is plenty. It's just somebody to help you with whatever it is that you're not super great at or excited about. And if that's the business end of things, find a collaborator who's really good at that. Um, If you're the business end of things, find somebody who's just purely creative and can help you with that side. It's also worth pointing out that I, I know that from the beginning, so, so this is a little bit of a rabbit hole, but when I first started on the podcast, I looked at Sean and Dave like they were a different species. How could authors ever possibly collaborate? Now, obviously, that my opinion on that has changed. But I think that a lot of people do think that way. It's, a, it's like, oh, well, that's interesting that they talk about collaboration, but that is too complicated or wouldn't work for me or some other reason. That said, I think that everybody collaborates to some degree. You're collaborating when you share um, an outline or a story pitch with your significant other or a friend. Um, You're collaborating when you get a book cover done or work with an editor or anything like that. So I think it's important for authors to understand that when we talk about collaboration, there's a spectrum there. And you can be a quote-unquote sole author and still use everything that we talk about because in the wider picture, sorry, in the wider picture, nobody works alone. Yeah, it's definitely a good idea to consider what tasks you, you can outsource, even if you're it's just you. And that could be just the book cover designer or an editor or proofreading and then taking it from the, from there. The model you've described seems a little bit inspired by what studios do for television shows. Oh, yeah, we stole it directly. <laughs> it's not it's not inspired so much as thieved. It's thieved. And we, we even use their language. I mean, when we talk about casting and um, location scouting for our fiction... Yeah, that's those are movie terms. Okay. Oh, gotcha. Okay. okay. Episodes and seasons. That's another one. Yep. Yeah, we steal everything good. <laughs> <laughs> you you also said that you were writing books that won't come out for at least another twelve to fifteen months. So so how would you go about planning like that far ahead? Arduously. 
chaotically, I would. Yeah, add. yeah, chaotically. And I, I'm going to let Sean answer this question fully, but I'll just say up front that the piece that I didn't explain when I was telling the story about leaving education is that we had a really good thing going when it was literally just me, Sean, and Dave. And maybe we had one or two other people, but not writers. We weren't releasing other people's stuff. With our Invasion series, you know, at its peak, that was making $60,000 a month in royalties that we could spend. Like, I'm not talking that was Amazon's share. I'm talking that was ours. Yep. And we took our eye off the ball. And um, that's one of the other reasons that it all cost us so much. So th- those are significant royalties. Um, is it possible to get those kind of royalties back? If you, if you look now, like, quite frankly, we aren't doing as well in the fiction department because we took our eye off the ball and had to take, I don't know, 18 months of just like pure production because we're, we're always looking at a long-term approach. And that means that we need, to, if with the volume that we have, we can't just release willy-nilly. We need a plan. We need to, um, each author needs to have several books so that when somebody likes the first one, there's a second to buy. We want to have a list. We want to have an intelligent release strategy. And we want to generate all those assets, meaning the, not just the manuscripts, but the, the covers and the blurbs and all that stuff. So Sterling and Stone over the past, I would say, two full years has been stockpiling. And um, we haven't released as much. And we're just now starting to do that. So yes, and to answer your question, the return of the royalties, that's exactly where we're going. We're returning to fiction, not just because it's heart space, but because it's quite honestly where the money was and where the money will be again. So it just is about getting that flywheel starting again. But the problem is that we let it stop. And so we're, we've been spinning it for the past two years. So you have your publication calendar mapped out for 2020, I guess. And 2021. Yeah. This is where Sean takes over. Yeah, yeah 2020 is already done. Um, and, and that was, to use Johnny's word, it was arduous. Um, there's a lot of changing there. And the, we had some very unique challenges in that we wanted to be fair to all of our authors, be fair to the company as far as what got released and when and really design reader experiences that were just better than what most readers are getting out there and do it in a way where none of us went crazy. (laughs) So there's definitely a lot to manage. And uh, right now we have 150 books scheduled for next year and that's down from 181. And it made sense to just shelve some stuff and do less so that we could do more and build out. And so yeah, 2021 is already getting some pieces in place as we ease into 2020. And that's never been our case before at all. We've always been just publishing as we go along. And that's just not sustainable for us anymore. We're, we're a little too mature for that. And so it's been exciting. The, the project I'm working on right now is for 2021. And I've never done that before. Yeah. And the, I mean, it's a pilot. So it, it has a lot of production ahead of it. It's, it. It actually won't be that much ahead of schedule by the time it's done. But it's still cool that I'm there. There's a lot of content I still owe for 2020. So it's not like I'm a full year ahead. But my goal, my primary goal for 2020 is to be one calendar year ahead on my production by December 31st of next year. That's pretty impressive. (laughs) 150 books as well. So I know you guys have people in the company who help, but... How do you manage to, like just the administrative work that goes with like uploading all those books and you know checking everything's correct and on the right stores and covers? We have a minion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, everything that we're building right now is built to stay as a system, and so there is a little more running around helter skelter than there will be in the future. But we're building in the process. So everything is just kind of a part of a flow. Okay, well, now we know the book needs to get proofread. Okay, now we know that 
we need that final compile and upload and, and whatever. And there's calendars around that and SOPs around that. And those are boring enough that, you know, we won't publish that as core curriculum. It's not yeah. about you know, character models or stuff like that. Um, but it is part of the process and it is something to be aware of. And, you know, we're trying to make everything as repeatable as possible because that really is the only way to grow. Even keeping track of all those books must be challenging. Yes. Like the, the list of yes. titles. But yeah, is absolutely. it just in a giant spreadsheet or have you found some other way? Uh, no, it's just in Airtable, a okay. giant spreadsheet. Your spreadsheet on steroids, yeah. <laughs> well, no, wait, uh, this isn't quite ready for debut, but that does undersell it a little bit because, I mean, I don't want to go too deep into this or whatever, but we basically, we have a, what's her title, Sean? Director of Marketing. Okay, so she's Director of Marketing, but she's also sort of taken on the, the monumental task of systematizing a lot of what you're talking about and, and built us this uh, database sells it short. Like it's, it's kind of nuts what she has done, like a portal almost for all of our authors to be able to come in and it, it will eventually, it's not ready for prime time yet. But it will eventually handle all of this stuff. It'll, it'll help us keep track of where all the books are and what stage they're in and what the deadlines are and what the publication calendar has to say and what and royalty even, percentages are. It goes on Even and as on. simple as like, oh, um, I'm a fan of this other author in the studio and you can download any of their books. So there's even like a, a small community component to it. it. It is very impressive. Okay. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I can imagine. So if an author is listening to this and they're, you know, they're, they're already writing fast... And I know you guys have a, some, an, a book that teaches people how to write fast, but they're, they're probably not quite at your level. Like, what, what should they be doing for 2020? Or what would you recommend they do? I would say question your assumptions. I don't think enough authors do that. I don't think enough humans do that, actually. <laughs> you know, you get very used to doing things in a very particular way. And um, you, you don't really say, why am I doing this? I've been doing this for a long time. And we're either getting diminished results or, or your results stop or they're not as good as they could be, you know, ask yourself why, ask what am I doing? And when's the last time I really pushed myself and grew? Because when you get comfortable, that's a lot of times when you stop challenging yourself. And if you're not challenged, you're not changed. And you're often not making as much or doing as much or feeling as rewarded. Okay. And, and finally, you've mapped out till 2021. So during the summer, I was on holidays and I was struck by the amount of people who, who were not reading. They're looking at their phones. Yeah. Do you think the book is in, in trouble? Um, whether it is or not, we're prepared for it. We'll always publish books, but we're getting into, into every form of storytelling uh, with a big migration toward film and television over the next few years. And um, storytelling will never, ever, ever go out of style. What we do is special and we do it in a unique way. So I think not only will we always have a place, we'll always have our place and it will be um, a dominant place for people who love well-crafted stories. Yeah, this is a chance for me to mention one of my favorite quotes, which was uh, a friend of mine told me this. And he said, in the future, people will want to be entertained. That was his prediction. So, I mean, the, the medium of the book, it's possible it might change, but we are looking sort of meta to that. So yes, our current model is primarily books and um, you know, the, the novel will always have a special place in my heart, regardless of what the rest of the company ends up doing or anybody else. But um, it really is about entertainment. And the mode that we're entertaining through right now is mainly books with, you know, we're starting to get some, some forays into, into film and TV. It's just entertainment. Like when are people ever going to want to stop being entertained? Never, I guess, never. <laughs> so where can people find more information about the fiction formula or some of your other books? Uh, well, the most straightforward answer to that is that um, there's a, a link for the fiction formula directly that is sterlingandstone.net slash the fiction formula. 
But uh, we are at sterlingandstone.net, but we're also just um, kind of everywhere. You could look for, you know, Sean Platt, Sean M. Platt and Johnny Truant on Amazon. And um, yeah, we're everywhere. Okay, well, it was great to talk to you today, guys. Yes, thank thank you you so much. much. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. If you did, please leave a rating on the iTunes store. And if you want to accomplish more with your writing, please visit becomearitertoday.com forward slash join and I'll send you a free email course. Thanks for listening.